Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle Radio. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today's episode is the first of a special double bill in which, with the help of an outstanding panel, we're discussing the rise of the impact economy. That's the title of a new white paper brought to you by the UBS Sustainability and Impact Institute. The Institute was established back in 2021 and is headed by Mike Ryan, Divisional Vice Chairman for Global Wealth Management and formerly GWM Chief Investment Officer for the Americas. We hear often from Mike on this programme. The Institute's founding aim was to create best-in-class sustainability and impact thought leadership. Then, in October last year, UBS announced the launch of its new Sustainability and Impact Forum with the appointment of the first four members. Through regular events, the forum seeks to drive debate on the most critical issues in sustainable finance today. Chaired by Mike, the forum comprises world-renowned thought leaders drawn from academia, commerce and activism. They all share a common and unwavering commitment to advancing the field of sustainability. The founding members are Peter Baker, President and CEO at the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, Dr Catherine Hayhoe, Chief Scientist for the Nature Conservancy and Distinguished Professor at Texas Tech University, Fiona Reynolds, CEO of Connexus Financial and former CEO of the United Nations Principles for Responsible Investment, and Sir Partha Gupta, Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Cambridge. Next week, in the second part of our special, we'll hear from Fiona Reynolds and also from Paul Donovan, Chief Economist in UBS Global Wealth Management and one of the key contributors to that freshly published UBS white paper. But today, it's a privilege to welcome Sapartha Desgupta to the programme to kick off our specials. Sapartha's celebrated research has covered welfare and development economics and the economics of technological change. Sapartha Desgupta, welcome. It's great to have you on the programme. Let's start with how you got involved first with the forum. How did that journey begin? Well, I became involved with the UBS forum in response to a request I had, an invitation I received from them to join it. And I was very pleased to do that because the background papers that were sent with the invitation suggested to me that uh, that we are now reached a stage where major corporations and banks are engaged in thinking about the impact of their of their activities from a variety of angles on mother nature. And that's been my subject of interest uh, for 40 years. I've been working pretty much nonstop, interrupted by work on other fields, but basically to develop the economics of nature, to bring nature seamlessly into economic reasoning. And I emphasize the word seamless because it means that I think we should think of nature, of the human economy as being embedded in nature. So to discuss projects, policies, activities without note of what they, how they impact on nature is uh, to me, not only misleading, but quite outrageous. And it was wonderful that uh, UBS approached me to, to help them think through these issues I'm just one of several other people, obviously, and I was very excited about the uh, the thought of joining them and hoping to learn through the discussions that I'll be having with fellow members, but to give an idea of why it matters that the banking sector, for example, 
should be much engaged with these issues. Well, that, and that's really interesting. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the, the general discourse around this space, Partha, because if we think about, I don't know, some of your of your many selected and, and, and famous works, if I don't know, Human Wellbeing in the Natural Environment, over 20 years ago, uh, first published now, do you think there's a feeling that, I don't know, the discipline is, is catching up with some of your thinking on this matter? Is the quality of the discourse around this engagement with the natural environment and economics, whether that's about establishing metrics or just having this broader narrative. Have we caught up, do you think, a little bit with, with some of the markers that you set down now, what, over, over two decades ago? It's a tough question to answer because there are uh, recipients and there are recipients. There are readers and there are readers. And when you ask me whether the discipline has caught up, I think probably at the academic level, the discipline has not caught up. That is to say, if you look at major journals of economics, so the top five, which are frequently cited as being the top five, and there are outstanding journals. You won't find any, at best, you might find the odd article on climate change, the economics of climate change. But other, aside from that, you won't uh, read any paper on, say, water or forests, or the disappearing forests, that is. Uh, these concerns are not really central to academic research in economics, certainly not in the United States. And all these five journals I mentioned, other, apart from one, are US-based ones. On the other hand, uh, interest and concern, uh, paradoxically for me, I come from the academic world. That's my life. That's my universe, so to speak. I was really have been extremely uh, pleased and surprised, in part, by the interest and the concerns that are being expressed in the private sector, corporation CEOs of companies. And uh, I've had quite a bit of dealings with them, not because uh, I know any of them, because I was the UK Treasury, which commissioned me to write the review of the economics of biodiversity, which was uh, which I submitted about two years ago, a bit over two years ago, kept my team, parts of my team, the, the organizing bits of my team, for an additional year. That's an unusual move, if you think of it. It's the Treasury, you know, not the Environment Department but the treasury of the UK government, kept my team uh, with a view to uh, disseminating the review. So it's they who did all the work in trying to, you know, engaging in discussions and soliciting interest. And that was fed on to me. And then we had, I had something like 250 Zoom meetings, much like the one we are having now, uh, with a wide variety of people, including, of course, the, uh, the private sector, banks, investment, manufacturing companies, the service sector, and so forth. And the level of interest is huge. Business schools have been very interested in it. And I think one reason business schools in the universities have been interested in it is in part, at least from the way the questions were raised, in part with, with a view to seeing how the curricula might change, might be adapted to these new issues, because they're concerned about employment opportunities for their graduates. And from business schools, obviously, they, a lot of them will go into the uh, financial sector and so forth. So, yes, I've been, I wouldn't say cat, caught up because in a way, I was surprised that what I thought or I continue to think are conceptually simple matters. Although in practice, it's going to be difficult to, to work for reasons that we'll discuss as we go along this interview. But it looks as though... I found it surprising. I find it surprising that it can be 
thought to be novel because the economics that I, am, uh, I was using in my review and all my discussions is orthodox. It started economics and we recognize what was missing and we just be bringing in the missing item. But of course it does change our entire mental framework. Now that may be the difficult thing. So yes, it's catching up in that sense, in the sense that governments are beginning to acknowledge that development programs that are insensitive to mother nature are not worth the paper they're written on and have actually tarnished millions and millions of lives over the decades. Not all governments are going to be acting on it in quite the pace that is now required given the urgency of the matter of the loss of biodiversity, the uh, problems associated with climate change, which are related issues, of course. On the other hand, I think I've seen, although there's obviously self-selection at work as to who wanted to speak with me, the private sector is quite engaged in the insurance companies, for example, are quite engaged with these issues, less so perhaps the World Bank. And that's really very sad because they're engaged in the uh, enhancement of development, economic development, particularly in poor countries. Uh, but they're, in a way, their mental framework is in, in an economics orthodoxy, which literally does not take nature all that seriously. Yes, after dinner conversations, yes, on Sundays, yes, but not on weekdays. Well, that's really interesting. I wanted to ask you a bit about that challenge of, you know, an ever more complex world in which we operate with crises and challenges of similar and rising complexity. And there is something interesting if we talk about impact economics that perhaps it is in, in a way it's not a revolutionary. It is a, it's a, a, a restatement of certain economic orthodoxies, uh, traditional broad focus. And that doesn't mean to say that we're not acknowledging that maybe this sort of simple output-based focus of economics, maybe that, that era has passed. I think, I don't know if you agree with that, part of that, you know, I guess over what, three quarters of a century, the sort of primary policy objectives of economics seem to have sort of stopped, stopped their evolution a, a little bit. But perhaps you could talk to us about what impact economics, if we switch our focus to that, represents. It is a reset in a way, but it takes economics back to something of a traditional broad focus. Can you tell us a bit about how you consider this this moment and maybe a bit about the shift from what output to impact economics and that process and, and where we are in that journey? Yeah, yes, of course. So when you mention output, I think the way we would infer that expression is something like GDP, uh, which is that the, let's say, the, the market value of the final products of an economy. Now, there are two aspects to it. One is market value, and the other is final product. So in that product and in the market, the combination of the two it should be taken to mean only those products which have a price, because otherwise, you know, otherwise, if it's that it doesn't have a price, if the market value is zero. Okay. Now, the problem with GDP, which of course captures this extremely well, this this combination of the two, is that it doesn't take into account the depreciation of capital assets that accompanies production, and the capital asset of particular concern is nature, the biosphere, all the ecosystems that are producing all the stuff on the basis of which GDP is constructed, out of which GDP is constructed, timber, water, and so forth, the primary products that we harvest or extract and then convert through human ingenuity and effort into final products, okay? Now, 
The trick here, and I think you're quite wise in saying that it goes to traditional notions, but it's not that traditional because the classical economists didn't take nature all that seriously either. They were writing at the period of beginnings of the Industrial Revolution, and they may have talked a little bit about urban pollution, but not much. Certainly, nature didn't appear as a capital asset other than land. But even the greatest of classical economists thought of land as essentially a, an indestructible asset, okay? And that if you need more land, well, there is more land. We're looking at the 18th century, remember? Okay, second half of the 18th century. So the idea that biosphere is finite and that she is degradable and furiously degradable is not quite an ancient notion. It is pretty modern in the sense that we, and we are, it's modern because we are living through it. We can experience it. We see it. We see ecosystems disappearing or being degraded through the human activities and people's lives are affected adversely. So that's the first point. The second point is that the impact economy has really mean the change in attitude that comes with it, with the idea of an impact economy, is that nature is an asset. We should be thinking of economic development as a process by which we manage our assets. So it's asset management problem uh, which economics is concerned with. Notice you've shifted attention away from a flow, which is output, or rather, shifted attention from output, which is a flow variable. You know, you say so many billion dollars of GDP per year. So it means it's a flow, okay? Whereas an asset, you don't say, well, the wealth I have is $1 million per year. You say it's $1 million, period. So it's a stock. So we are looking at stocks. And all I've done in my work, 40 years, as you mentioned, is to increasingly recognize and make over and over clarify the way in which economic analysis should change by shifting A to the idea of stock uh, management, management of stocks, asset management, that is, and B, keeping an eye, very serious eye on natural assets, natural capital, which we call natural capital. It could be grazing fields, it could be coastal fisheries, it could be mangroves, it could be coral reefs, it could be wetlands, it could be grasslands, and of course, it could be the rainforests and so forth, okay? Waterholes and so forth. That, that entire range of natural assets out there, which are being affected by our, our lives and on which we depend completely. Without them, we are luck, we are sunk. How do you bring them in, given that many of them don't have market prices? And there's hardly any, and no necessary ownership pattern. That is to say, for example, the open seas or the atmosphere as a sink for our pollution. Those are open access resources. Their prices are inevitably zero, but they are being affected by our activities. So this, this is where the action lies. These two ideas. One, keep bearing in mind that economic activity is asset management activity, that uh, therefore we should be concerned particularly with natural capital because prices are, prices are zero uh, in many cases, or even if they're not zero, uh, they, can be, they can be far away from what their value is, social value is. And several things ar arise out of that. For example, let me just say why it's not trivial change, even though it's obvious the way I'm describing it, that that's how it should be, how we should think of economic activity. The reason it's not trivial is that we, if you have spent 70 years, as you say, last three quarters of a century, 
are not thinking about nature at all, but developing an entire language or grammar of economic reasoning, which bypasses nature, it looks very different. You Many, many things that policies address, which may harm nature, you completely, you assess only on the basis of its other features, not the, that inflicts on nature. So let me give you an example. We now have, over the past 50 years, designed a world economy in which something like four to five trillion dollars a year of subsidies are given over to the exploitation of nature. Energy subsidies, of course, one of the classic thing, or subsidies for drawing water and so forth by farmers. Now, all this has come about through a obviously political agitation, farmers want subsidies and so forth, like the European Union, but also uh, notions of equity. Poor people need water, okay, hand over the subsidies for they be able to do that. But of course, subsidy means that the, the corresponding natural capital on which the subsidy is given has now a negative value. So you're paying ourselves, we are paying ourselves to exploit nature even further. So the moment that's pointed out, these subsidies look very different. We're creating distortions of an enormous amount. We have created distortions through creating a negative price for so many of these commodities without thinking. Uh, because, And we only saw the positive side of it. And that's why we brought them about. The negative side can be devastating too. So yes, it requires a different mindset, if you like. And that's why I think it'll take some time for us to work through how the day-to-day -day conversations about economic policy needs to change. Well, Partha, let me ask you next then about what needs to happen if we are to move more positively in, in that direction. I guess you're, well, it, it's interesting, you're, you're your tone and your remarks strike me as being, you know, there's an evident concern about lack of progress and about the scale of the problem. But I sense that you retain some optimism. And I guess implicit in that will be a confidence that there will be ways to affect change. Now, what does that look like? Is it about metrics, agreeing standardised measurements of progress, uh, measuring progress? And this point, I think that's so interesting what you say about the sort of negative value attached to natural capital. Is it about repricing what people truly want and need? Can you talk to us a little bit about how we actually go about affecting the change that we need to see? A very tall order. You're putting me in a uh, difficult position to be able to respond to a question as, as sensible and as important as you have asked. I can't do any justice to it, but let me sketch out a few things. First of all, we have a tendency of thinking that these resolutions to these problems, or if you like, attacking these problems, is done through the agency of the state. And there is a great deal of truth in it. We can't do really anything without the agency of the state at some level entering. On the other hand, we think in terms, very often, we think of the agency of the state as being exclusive. That's the only thing that matters. They need to change. Governments need to do this or that or the other. Uh, we also need to think about other wider issues regarding political economy or political science, if you like, the engagement of communities. Here it's going to be particularly important, the engagement of communities, because people's lives matter and the ecosystems are surrounding people. So villages, fishermen in, in coastal villages in India, for example, or people who live in or around the Amazon uh, forest. I mean, you can just you can give countless examples of them. 
people's lives are affected by economic policy and their own decisions are affecting the environment in which they live, environment writ large, that is the ecosystems in which they reside. We forget that the poorest people in the world, which really does matter here, by the way, because we're looking at Africa, we're looking at South Asia, we're looking at Latin America and Southeast Asia, and there they, you know, it's so much of biodiversity resides in the tropics, roughly speaking, in the tropics, and so much of poverty uh, is centered on the tropics. So this two, the combination of the two is very powerful. Now, their voices need to be heard, and it's the absence of their voice which has led to some of the problems that we face, because governments can override their needs by saying, we're going to have a dam here, or we're going to do this here, or set canals here, and so forth. And that may, be, may or may not be good from one level, but it can damage many other people's lives. Also, a lot of the information regarding the processes in ecological processes reside not in amongst academic scientists or government officials, but they reside in even the poorest people because they lived there for centuries and they have much idea about how the grassland works or the, where the fish tend to congregate in a particular time of the year or whatever. So the management issue of natural capital is much more decentralized than in the case of running a factory, for example. So that aspect of nature is extremely important to bear in mind. So now you're asking, are we seeing any progress? There are some things on which I think the, my review, if you like, if you, I'm going to use my review as just a template for writings on this field, not because it's the only thing available there, plenty of material. The issue that has struck a chord, and I think I'm optimistic, not only optimistic, but it's happening even as we speak, is government national statistical offices are, are beginning to get engaged in natural capital accounting. By that, I mean that national statistical offices, in addition to offering all the usual statistics that we're familiar, we're familiar with, like GDP, employment, you name it, will now have beginning to produce assets information, information about the state, the quality of the natural capital within their jurisdiction. Some of them will price and be able to give some notion of the value of those assets in quantitative terms. Now, these prices are not market prices. The reason it's a difficult area is that we are not looking at market prices. We're looking at the social worth of those, those assets, you know, what it means to the economy. And that's hard work, but it can be done. And there's a lot of work on that that's already been done. Some of them will be priced in national statistical offices. Many won't be because it's too difficult and too early. Eventually we may, but just as GDP took years and years of refinement to come to the state that they are in now today when the ONS or the Office of, Office of National Statistics offer the figures, likewise here there'll be improvements as we go along. But for the moment, it will be essentially taking cognizance of the state of natural capital in an economy you know, on a sector by sector basis, fisheries, forests, and so forth. Okay, maybe even biodiversity figures, and location and so forth, where they are located and so forth. Now that's going to be very important, because it's a way of informing the public, if not only the government, of what the assets are, what they amount to and how they're moving through time. That's extremely important. Then next comes, of course, you have to think in terms of policy. And I've already suggested that it's not just policy, emanating from the from the state, but information and dialogue with communities engaged to handle this asset management problem. And here I am somewhat optimistic, 
for, for democratic societies and why them and here of course is another further argument as to why democracy is needed in order to protect nature from being completely destroyed and that's because the information comes from people and their immediate lives matter and it's a slightly it makes me a little more optimistic about the response to the biodiversity crisis on which I wrote my report over climate change and the reason is that we can all agree on the salience of climate change we can all agree that two degrees three degrees four degrees are going to be more and more disastrous for the future but at some le at, the le at the individual level you could throw up your hand and say what can I do there's nothing I can do. I'm too small. I'm one in eight billion people. So it's a public good writ large, namely climate regulation, the climate system, that is, that's a public good. That's being tarnished, but I can't do very much about it. So on my daily basis, my daily life, I will get into the car. Strong incentive for me to do that because it's, I'd like nobody to read get into the car because of the climate problem but since others are going to I may as well it's not I have I, I will not be harming that's not quite true with biodiversity and the state of ecosystems in general which is because the destruction of the ecosystem in which you reside and that could be by the way from your uh, middle class point of view could be just the back garden if that is affected you care because it's your stuff it's your life and so when we talk about NIMBYs keeping this, you know, construction work, or, you know, protesting against encroaching construction near the neighborhood, that's a potent force. And it, it, we call, may call it NIMBY, but the NIMBYism has a point, namely, it is their biodiversity which is being affected. I'm using biodiversity now as a way of just encapsulating the idea of natural capital around your neighborhood, so to speak. So the response of the individual is going to be much more, my guess is, is going to be increasingly powerful because they're going to say, no, we don't want a road to tarnish the park that we've been enjoying all this time, and that's only half a mile away from my home. Where do my children go and play? That's the kind of political science that's, I think, going to be erupting in democracy. Now, of course, if it's not a democracy, you know, all bets are off. So that's where I think there is a difference. And I think progress will be made. Again, when we talk about pricing, we don't shouldn't think always in terms of market prices. In fact, we many communities, large numbers of communities, and there's a huge literature on that in third world, for example, in particularly amongst poor traditional societies, have faced up to the asset management problem that I've just now mentioned, whether it's grazing field or whether it's fishery or whether it's water from the canal or from the river, so forth have created systems of governance based on social norms of behavior. People are watching. People accept that you can take so much and not more. And the punishment for doing more, more than what you should will be social sanctions or one form or the other. There's a huge anthropological literature on that. Now, in such a society, there are prices, except that they're not market prices. And the prices are being are revealed through the regulations, if you like, that have been imposed within that community in question regarding how you uh, use your natural capital, how much cattle to graze, how much of timber to take away from, you know, the twigs and stuff from the forest, which fruits can you, can you collect, how much water to draw, 
you know, sharing of water and so forth, they're regulated, not through the law, but through norms of behavior. Very much like community norms we have in this country, but they're increasingly small relative to our other activities. Whereas in a, in a traditional society, of course, they're very large relative to the rest of because markets don't necessarily exist. The state is far away. There are no courts of law. So communities create their own governance structure. So when I use prices, the notion of prices, pricing natural capital is extremely important. You shouldn't think I'm commodifying nature. That's been a criticism that is often leveled against my kind of doing the economics of nature. Nature is a commodity in the sense that our lives depend on it. So we think of it as a commodity, but it's not a market commodity. It's a it's more, 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 more delicate than that. And of course, there are parts of nature which we may think of as being sacred. And many communities have sacred groves and sacred trees, sacred bodies of water, and they act accordingly. Namely, you, you can't tarnish that and so forth. But they also inform prices in the sense that there is an implicit price, namely extremely high, don't touch it, if you see what I mean. The brilliant Sir Parthur Descriptor, Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Cambridge and Fellow of St John's College, bringing us to the end of this special edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda each week on Monocle Radio. Do be sure to tune in at the same time next week to hear the second instalment exploring the rise of the impact economy. That episode will feature Fiona Reynolds and Paul Donovan. In the meantime, listen again and explore more at monocle.com. That's where you can join the club by subscribing to Monocle magazine. You can also follow this programme wherever you get your podcasts. And you can discover more about UBS's own commitments to making a positive impact. And you can find out how the bank can help you by heading to ubs.com and searching for Impact Economy. This is The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle Radio. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening. Listener.